Well, good morning. How is everybody? Good. Hey, if you are joining us in Roan County, if you're out in Bearden, it's good to see you this morning. If you're an Amped Blend, also so great to have you guys. Um, we are going to be continuing in our series, Fluent in Good News. Now, when I think about fluency, uh, Tim talked about this a few weeks ago when we introduced the series. To be fluent in another language means that you begin to think in that language. You not only speak the language, but you think in it, you dream in it. You, I mean, it just naturally flows out of who you are. And I have to tell you, I have never had that happen in my life. I, I took two years of Spanish class in high school with Senora Silva. And here is a phrase that got me through Spanish class. It's a phrase that means, how do you say? So I learned in Spanish, you say, como se dice, which means, how do you say? And then you fill in the blank with the English word. So if I wanted to say, how do you say table in Spanish? I would look at Senora Silva and I'd go, como se dice uh, table in Espanol? And she would tell me what it was. And then I would have to think of the next word in English. And, I, and then I'd be like, como se dice? And she just would end up looking at me and go, Ugh, and she would move on to the next person. I did not do super well. I was not fluent in Spanish. Then I decided to go to college and take Greek, which is a dead language, and I'm not fluent in that either. But when you're fluent in something, it just naturally, it's an outflow of who you are. And so if we are good news people, if we are gospel people, then we need to have the gospel so saturated in our lives, in our hearts of who we are, that it impacts the way in which we view the world. It impacts the way we talk to the people in the world. It impacts the way that we talk to each other within the body of Christ, the church. It impacts everything we do. And as people of the word, we need to be fluent in it. We need to be fluent in the good news, and then the only way we will ever be fluent in the gospel and the good news is if we understand the whole story of who God is, and that's both Old Testament and New Testament. And we're gonna see that today, how the Old Testament and the New Testament really are bridged together in the person of Jesus. And so here's our big idea this weekend. The good news, the gospel is revealed, or realized, I'm sorry, is realized when Jesus is our king. It's only when we submit our lives to Jesus as king. It's only then that the good news actually becomes just that, good in our lives. The good news is only good when we look at Jesus and we say, you're the king, you're the one who was to come, you lived the life I couldn't live, you died a death that I deserve, and I submit to you as King Jesus, and it's then and only then that the gospel actually is good news. But in order to submit to Jesus as king, we need to have a better understanding of who he is. Because there's a lot of confusion in our world today about who Jesus is. But the confusion about who Jesus is, that's nothing, we didn't in the like 21st century, we didn't invent confusion about who Jesus is and who he was. You see, in the first century, the time in which Jesus actually lived, there was a lot of questions about who is this guy? And so we're covering a lot of scripture today. We're gonna to begin in Mark chapter four, starting in verse 35, and we're actually going through chapter eight, verse 30. And I want you to think, as you go through the live it out this week, 
I want you to think about this question. Who is this guy? Because a lot of times in these passages that you're gonna read this week, we don't have time to read all of them this morning, there's a lot of questions about who actually is Jesus? And we're gonna see at the end of chapter eight that the question gets asked directly. So Mark chapter four, and we're gonna start in verse 35. So if you have your Bibles, your John journals, your phones, whatever it is, turn them on. If you don't, it'll be on the screen there. It says this, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, his disciples, let us go to the other, across to the other side. So they're on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They're in kind of the Capernaum area region. And so they're going to cross over and they're going to head east across the Sea of Galilee, which really is just a lake. They're going to go across the lake into a land that a lot of times Jewish people wouldn't go. It was kind of a little out of the bounds, so to speak. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, and look at this question here, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, so you get the picture here, right? Jesus has been doing all this teaching. He's been doing all these miracles. The guy's probably pretty exhausted, and he tells his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, mind you, there are some experienced fishermen among the disciples, and so they started rowing across the lake, and Jesus, being exhausted, actually fell asleep in the boat, and all of a sudden, a storm, which would have been common in those days. The, the winds would whip up off the Mediterranean Sea from the west, and they would whip up into the Sea of Galilee, and they would create these huge waves, and the disciples are rowing, and this storm is happening, and the waves are breaking over the boat, and the brother Jesus is sitting there asleep in the boat. He had to have been exhausted. And you have experienced fishermen, scared for their life. So what do they do? They go to Jesus. Jesus, don't you care that we're dying here? And Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind and says, peace, be still. And the whole storm just stops. Then he looks at the disciples. I love the Bible. He looks at the disciples and goes, why are you guys so afraid? Uh, do you not, did you not see the waves breaking over the boat? And it's almost as Jesus is, is saying to them, he's like, you don't have to be afraid when I'm in your boat. And he looks at them and he says, do you still not get who I am? Do you still not get it? And what are the disciples? They start to look around and they start to go, who is this guy? That even all of nature, at the, at the sound of his voice, obeys him. Even, even nature obeys him. Who is this guy? Now, we were in the book of Exodus, remember? Yes? Yes, we were in the book of Exodus. And we are heading back into the book of Exodus very shortly. And in the book of Exodus, we've read ahead, so, so you should know this. This should be familiar to you. This story should remind you of another story that actually happened in the book of Exodus. You see, King Jesus right here is showing his sovereignty over the creation. 
He's, she's showing that he is sovereign over nature. And there's another story back in the book of Exodus where God had freed his people and they, they march out of Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians and they get to the water's edge. They think they're home free. They get to the water's edge, the Red Sea, and they turn behind them and what's happening? Here comes the Egyptian army. And they start crying out. And what does God do? God shows that he is sovereign, that he is king over nature. And what does he do? He sends a great wind and imparts the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through on dry ground. And God's showing his authority over nature and showing that he is the true king, not Pharaoh, has the waters collapse on the whole of Egyptian army. You see, Jesus is the king revealed through all of God's story. Jesus is the king. We have this bridge between Exodus and, and Jesus here in the book of Mark. God shows the sovereignty over nature in the book of Exodus. And Jesus is coming and he goes, that's me. And he shows his sovereignty, his authority over nature by calming the seas. In fact, you're going to read in another story as you go through the passage this week that he calms a storm again. As I was walking through studying this week, and I was reading the stories from chapter 4 through chapter 8. I couldn't help but think of a passage in Luke chapter 7. It's in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist. Now you remember John the Baptist, he was the one that came to prepare the way of the Lord. He was out in the desert and he was baptizing them and he was saying, repent, repent, because one's coming after me that's greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist, his job was to point to Jesus. And John had an idea of who this anointed one, this Messiah was going to be. And yet, here we are in Luke chapter 7, and John the Baptist is in prison. He's thrown in jail. And I think his ideas of who he thought Jesus was going to be, the kind of Messiah, the kind of king he was going to be, I think he started to question it in his head. He's starting to go, if he's really the king, would I really be in prison right now? And so John calls a couple of John's disciples. Disciples are just followers, and John had some disciples, and he called some of them, and he said, hey, go to Jesus, find Jesus, and ask him a question. Are you it? Are you the one who's to come? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? And so the disciples of John, they run, they find Jesus, and they go to Jesus and they say, hey, are you it? And Jesus responds in a very Jesus way, okay? Jesus very rarely ever just responds, yep, that's me, go tell John. He doesn't do that. But instead he does, he quotes Isaiah in Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know what Jesus does right here? He actually goes back and he quotes Isaiah 29, he quotes Isaiah 35, passages that are pointing towards the coming king, the anointed one, the Messiah who was to come. And Jesus takes those passages from Isaiah and says, tell John what you see. These things are happening on account of me. Essentially, in a very Jewish way, Jesus was going, yep, I'm him. 
And the disciples of John would have understood it. And they ran back and they told John. The fact of the matter is, Scripture points to God, to Jesus as the ultimate king. Scripture has always been pointing that there would be an ultimate king coming one day, and that king's name is Jesus. We see Jesus fulfilling this throughout chapters 5, 6, 7, 8. You see, in chapter 5, we're not going to read it today, Jesus once again heals a man who was possessed by a demon. Also in chapter 5, Jesus heals a woman who had had a disease for 12 years, and she touches the cloak. And while she touches the cloak, Jesus was actually on the way to heal a, a, a ruler's little daughter who was sick and very close to death. And this woman who has this disease reaches through the crowd and she just thinks, if I just touch this cloak, then I'll be healed. And she does. She reaches and she knows instantly she's healed. And Jesus, realizing power has left him, says, who did it? And she comes and she goes, it was me, sir. Jesus heals the woman. But as he was waiting and engaging with this woman who had had a disease for 12 years, a crowd came to Jesus and said, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore because your daughter's dead. And Jesus said, take me to her. And so Jesus walks to this house. There's mourners outside. They're crying because this little 12-year-old little girl was dead. They knew it. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. And he walks into this little girl's room and he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And all of a sudden you see the breath <gasps> fill her lungs and she wakes up. And then Jesus does, once again, a very Jesus saying. He looks at his, the parents and the people in the room and says, don't tell anybody. Now, I don't know how that works. Like, if the little girl's dead and all of a sudden she walks out and she's asking for mac and cheese and everybody outside the mourners, they're like, what happened in there? They're like, oh, nothing. <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? Jesus says, don't tell anyone. The stories continue and Jesus, in chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunchbox of five loaves and two fish. And in the same chapter, he goes on and he walks on the water in the middle of a storm as the disciples are struggling. And he once again calms the storm. Jesus again and again and again is fulfilling the passages in Isaiah showing that he is the true king, the one who was to come. And yet, there was still a lot of confusion about who he is. So if you turn over to Mark chapter six, there's a story that takes place here in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. It's the, it's the town in which he grew up in. Capernaum was, when he was an adult, that was kind of home base for him, but Nazareth wasn't too far from there. And it says in chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? And then they said in verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, 
the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Church, I gotta tell you something. I never wanna make Jesus marvel for this reason. I want to make Jesus marvel because we're people of faith. I never want him to look at us and go, he marveled because of their unbelief. And yet here he was in a synagogue in his hometown and they didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. And he's going, this is amazing that they don't see who I am. And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus has been doing all this incredible stuff. He's teaching with authority. He's teaching in ways that people had never seen it before. And they're going, you're amazing. He's doing all these miracles. I mean, he's raising people from the dead. He's healing their diseases. He's causing mute people to speak again. And then he goes to his hometown. His hometown where people actually knew him. It was in his hometown, he's in the synagogue, and it would have been customary for a, a traveling rabbi to be able to teach in the local synagogue. And so he, there he was at Nazareth, and he's teaching them, and they're blown away, and then they start to do things that if you've ever been back to your hometown, they started doing those things. They, said, they started going, wow, my, he's grown up. He's, he's quite turned into something. And then they started going, I remember him when he was little and, and he was following Joseph around and he was learning the trade. And, and then they started going, but now, this is weird. He's claiming all this stuff and yet we know his brothers. We know his sisters. We know his mom. I mean, and they rejected him. Now, I gotta tell you, I read this story in Mark chapter six and it's easy for me, with the, with the view of perspective, to look at this and go, oh my gosh, those people in Nazareth, <laughs> so blindsided, they, they just couldn't see it. But if I was in Nazareth, I would have followed him. Did you ever think this way? Like if I was there, if I would have heard his teaching, if I would have seen him, I would have gone, yeah, you're it, I understand, I believe you, you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah. But then I look at the root of what the people of Nazareth did. They took a truth about Jesus. You see, they actually did know Jesus. They do remember him from when he was a child. They do remember him running around the village. They do remember all the rumors that were swirling at the time of his birth. They knew truth about Jesus and they took that small truth about who Jesus was and they expanded it out and they formed their whole theology of Jesus based upon a small truth. And when I looked at that, I went, oh no, that's exactly what I do. I take a truth about Jesus a truth about Jesus that I like, a truth about Jesus that's convenient for me, and I form my whole theology of who Jesus is around that truth, and I choose to ignore the things that are harder to understand about Jesus, the things that are a little bit more inconvenient about Jesus, and I start to go, 
this is the Jesus that I follow, and the danger in that is I form Jesus in my own image. Instead, I'm created in his. You see, when we begin to form our whole truth about who Jesus is, based upon one small fact, we will miss Jesus just like the people of Nazareth did because the truth remains, only Jesus gets to define his kingship. Only Jesus gets to define the kind of king he is. You see, for me, in my life and in my world, we don't use the language of king a lot, and we've talked about that. In my life and in my world, I, I, I'm okay with the idea of Jesus being king, but I want to have a vote of the kind of king that I, that I get. You know, I'm still very democratic in my process. I want a vote of the kind of king that I want. I want a king who's loving. I want a king who's forgiving. I want a king. Do I want a king who's judging? No, I don't really want that. And so let's just skip that part. I'll follow this Jesus. And the problem is we don't get to define the kind of king he is and we don't get to define the kind of kingdom he has because Jesus' kingdom runs very counterculture to the kingdoms of this world. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, what happens? Power is actually seen in weakness. Strength is seen in humility. Forgiveness is necessary to be free. Life is found through death. Those things about the kingdom of Jesus are manifested in all of Jesus' life and in his teachings. You see, our world does this exact same thing. You see, our world knows about Jesus. And one of the things that our world likes to say is Jesus is love. Now, let me just ask you a question. We're all participating, all venues and everything else. Is Jesus love? Yes, thank you. I was, I was worried about asking that question that you guys were just going to be silent and be like, this is a trick question. We're not going to really participate in this. Jesus is love. Absolutely but where our world goes wrong is that our world wants to define what love is and they don't let King Jesus define love. You see, Jesus defines love as obedience. If you love me, you'll actually do what I say. That's the definition of love for Jesus. But our world takes Jesus and they say, well, Jesus is love. Their definition of love, our world's definition of love is unconditional acceptance. And so our world says, Jesus is love, and therefore he just accepts everybody, just where there are. He doesn't want to change them. There's no judgment in Jesus. Jesus is love, so he unconditionally accepts everyone. The problem is, that runs absolutely contrary to what scripture actually says. Is Jesus love? Yes, can we come to Jesus just as we are? Absolutely. The love of Jesus accepts a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8. 
This woman is brought before Jesus, caught in the very act of adultery. There's no excuse for her. The people around want to kill her. They bring her to Jesus, and Jesus says, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone, the killer, and then he bends over and starts riding on the ground. Slowly but surely, the oldest first drop their stones. They walk away, and it's just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus stands up, looks at the woman, and says, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. And then, you know what he doesn't say? Now I just accept you. Just stay the way you are. What does he say to her? He says, go now and leave your life of sin. You see, the love of Jesus allows anyone and everyone to come to him. But the love of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. The love is a transforming love. It changes you from where you are when you come to be made into the image of his son. That's what the love of Jesus does. It's not just unconditional acceptance. It's an acceptance that wants to work by the Holy Spirit in you to transform you into something that you aren't right now. The love of Jesus is a love that allows murderers, it allows thieves, it allows adulterers, it allows homosexuals and transgenders and gossips, and it allows you and it allows me to come to him, but it's a love that doesn't want to leave us there. It's a love that wants to transform us into the image of Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, when we come and we submit to King Jesus, guess what? We do not get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we want to follow. You know what we get? We get all of him. And all of him is better than anything we can pick and choose and conjure up in our own minds. We get Jesus. And that is the answer. That is the solution. And can I tell you, that's the hope of the world is Jesus and nothing more and nothing less. He is what we need. Our job is to follow. Jesus has been revealing himself as the true king all throughout this passage, and people were still questioning. They're still going, we don't really get who he is. So they leave this area. They're up in the Sea of Galilee region, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he goes, all right, guys, let's go. And they start walking north from the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't think the disciples at this point would have questioned much. I think Jesus traveled around enough. And I'm not sure following Jesus that he was the kind of leader that would be like, okay, guys, here's the plan for the day. So I, if there was type A followers of Jesus, uh, disciples at that point, I think they would have been frustrated. They're like, where are we going today? Where's our stop? What time's lunch? Where are we going? Where's the bathroom breaks? Jesus says, let's go. And what do they do? They start walking north. And I'm sure as the day kind of started to wind on, as it kind of started to grind on, I think the disciples probably started looking at each other and started going, we're not going there, do you think? No way. No way, we can't be going up there. You see, they've heard stories about this area called Caesarea Philippi. They've heard the stories of the pagan worship that takes place there, a, a pagan worship that is overtly sexual in nature. And they started to go, no way, he's not gonna bring us there. Surely not. Jewish people, we don't go up there. We can't go there. There's the gates of Hades. There's the gates of the underworld there. We can't go there. And sure enough, that's exactly where Jesus was bringing him. 
It was about a 26-mile journey or so. It was a day's journey. And Jesus walks his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, that's where we're going to pick up the story as they're on the outskirts of Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, think of like Las Vegas of the day, but worse, okay? And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So they're on their way. Now, if you've ever been to Caesarea Philippi, it's a, it's a town carved into a like rock hillside, and there's all these pagan altars. And so Jesus begins to ask a general question, and he says, who do people say that I am? Now, if you want something pretty interesting, in Mark chapter 6, earlier in one of the passages that we didn't cover this morning, Herod starts reflecting on who is Jesus, and he actually reflects in almost the exact same way that the disciples answer here. So he asked the disciples, who do, who do people out there say I am? And they said, well, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, at this point, John the Baptist is dead. He's beheaded. And they say, some say John the Baptist, like you know, that, that John has come back to life. Others say Elijah, who was one of the Old Testament, primary Old Testament prophets. And others say you're just one of the prophets. You see, even in the talk outside of the disciples, everybody knew that Jesus was an important figure. They didn't know exactly who he was, but he's, he's an important guy. And that's what people are saying about you, Jesus. And then Jesus continues in the passage in verse 29. And he asks them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, Jesus takes a general question. Who do people say I am? And they kind of circulate around. Well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. And it's like Jesus looks right at his disciples. I imagine that, that first question, they could have been walking along the way and they're journeying together. And I almost picture it this way, that almost like Jesus stops and it's almost like he leans in and he goes, okay, but who do you say I am? You've been with me. You've seen me. You've seen all the things I've done. You've heard my teaching. You've witnessed it all. Who do you say I am? Do you get it yet? And Peter, being the spokesperson for the disciples oftentimes, Peter's the one that speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. Christ simply means you're the anointed one. It, it, the, the Hebrew word is Messiah. You're the anointed one. Now, if you read through your Old Testament, you're not gonna really find the word Messiah in the Bible because it's translated in English. You're the anointed one. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the anointed one. You are the true king of Israel, the one that we've been waiting for. You are it. And in this moment, guess what? Peter gets it right. He's going to blow it in about a minute and a half. But, but in this moment, he gets it right. And the truth of the matter is, is that the kingship of Jesus demands a response. 
When we come face to face with King Jesus, it demands that we respond to him. Whether we like it or not, Jesus is a polarizing person. A lot of people have ideas of who they think Jesus is or who they want Jesus to be. Yet when we see Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture, it demands that we either acknowledge him as king or we don't. And I gotta tell you, whether you're in this room, if you're watching in one of our other venues, to choose not to acknowledge Jesus as king, to say, I'm gonna wait, is saying no. Jesus demands a response. It doesn't mean that we're gonna fully understand who he is. We come, all of us have come to Jesus with preconceived notions of who we think he is, and yet we need to come with open hands as we study the scripture more. Is Jesus love? Yes. Is he accepting? Yes. He loves you right where you are, but that doesn't mean, because scripture reveals, Jesus is the rightful judge. We saw that in the book of Revelation. We come to Jesus and we accept all, we receive all of Jesus. We submit our life to all of who Jesus is. He demands a response. And the truth is, is that's our, really our first next step this week. If you've never submitted your life to King Jesus, then there is no time like the present. Today is July 9th, 2023. And today can be the first day of submitting your life to King Jesus. And when you submit your life to King Jesus, guess what? You actually find life. Why? Because Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus that we have life. And if you've never submitted to your Jesus as king, then why not today? Because it doesn't change the reality whether you submit to him or not, he is the rightful king. It doesn't change his position. You don't change his position. It is who he is. And he has come to give us life, not just eternally, but life here and now. So I think the question that Jesus asked the disciples is the same question that he's asking each and every one of us, who do you say I am? And so I'm gonna give you a chance right now, just in the silence of your seat, And if you've never submitted your life to King Jesus, I want you to tell him, just even in your own words. You might want to just say something along the lines of, Jesus, you are the king, and I submit to you. Tell him in your own words. And if you're in here and maybe you've already submitted your life to King Jesus, ask Jesus, to show you those areas of your life that maybe you've been clinging to one small truth, one small 
uh, truth of who Jesus is and you formed your whole theology on that and yet what are the areas of Jesus that you're choosing to ignore, you're choosing to bypass because they're difficult? Just gonna give you a moment here. If you're in here, and maybe for the first time, whether you're in this room or whether you're online, one of our other venues, I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor. If you've, for the first time, submitted your life to King Jesus, there's a connection card on your bulletin. And here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna ask you to fill out your name and a contact, whether it's your phone or email address, and I want you to fill that out, and on the inside of that card, there's a box that you can check. Today I prayed to receive Christ, and in every venue, every campus, there is a box in the back of the room. On your way out, I'm gonna ask that you just drop that in there, because guess what? If you submit your life to King Jesus, you join the church. You become part of the body of Christ, and you're like, whoa, 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 that might be a deal breaker. It's not, because why? We get to journey together as we pursue Jesus. We'll also have prayer teams up in the front of every venue of every campus. And so if you would like someone to pray with you, if there's questions you have, I'll be around. Their prayer teams be around. Campus pastors, venue pastors will be around. They would love to talk with you. But please don't leave without even dropping it in the box or talking to somebody. The second next step this week is this, the live it out together section. There is so much good stuff that you get to jump into this week. And I want you to think as you walk through these passages this week of answering the question, who is this? Because Jesus was pointing, he was proving that he was the rightful king. And we are, Mark is driving to the end of the book where Jesus is actually crowned king. And it goes once again, it's an upside down kingdom. He's crowned king on a cross. But right now, He is proving that he is the rightful king. And so here's what we're gonna do right now in this venue, in all our venues, all our campuses. I'm gonna invite you to stand and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship the true king. We are gonna worship King Jesus. So Father, thank you that you sent your son to live the life we couldn't live. He died the death to pay the punishment that our sins deserve. He rose again, giving us new life, life that begins today, an internal life that impacts everything we do today. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.